substitutionary atonement, inerrancy, and wait a second, all these questions are about the Bible. What if we asked a real Bible expert to host the show this week? It's time for Ask Bible Pete. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Science Mike, known in the real world as Mike McCarg. I'm an author, podcaster, speaker, co-host, a liturgist, blah, 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 blah. But we're doing something different this week. I'm not going to host the podcast. Uh, you send me Bible questions all the time. And I often feel very unqualified to answer those questions. So this week, Dr. Peter Inns is hosting Ask Science Mike, this week called Ask Bible Pete. And why are we doing that? Well, for a lot of people, the way they relate to the Bible has gotten stale at best uh, or confusing or even traumatic at worst. Uh, How we read the Bible really impacts our worldview. And when we read the Bible differently than our community, that can be a problem. And sometimes we lose confidence in the Bible because we're reading it wrong. Okay, so uh, one of the people most influential in how I approach the Bible, and therefore how I approach my faith, is Pete Inns. Now, he's written a ton of books. Uh, I've read most of them. I especially recommend The Bible Tells Me So, and The Sin of Certainty. Both of those are are phenomenal, accessible works about how to read the Bible. Uh, He also hosts a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, and that is starting up next week. Their season, next season, kicks in. So check out that podcast, The Bible for Normal People, and also consider supporting it on Patreon. There's, There's not a lot of great progressive, open Christian resources out there. There's lots of restrictive conservative evangelical resources. But for people looking, you know, at the Christian faith a different way, there's not as many options. So support uh, Pete and what he's doing in his podcast, buy his books. And without uh, further ado, what do you say? Let's get into this. Here comes the first question. Hey, Science Mike. I've been on a spiritual journey over the last year or so. I, well, I guess technically I've been on a spiritual journey my whole life. But in the last year, I've been really encouraged by your work. So thank you. I'm sending this question as something that I've been struggling with because I've realized that a key to my faith in God is my view of the Bible as God's word. And so this is actually could be a question for Bible Pete. I'm wondering if the belief in the Bible as a situational document is mutually exclusive to the belief in the Bible as a divinely inspired, inerrant word of God. I've been always taught that to give up divine inspiration is to give up any sure way of knowing who God is, and thus any way of having a true relationship with him. So I've been afraid of what it would mean to no longer hold to the scripture as an errand. So I'm curious, is it possible, without offending logic too much, to agree with everything Bible Pete teaches about how to read and apply the Bible, and yet to still hold the Bible as the inerrant word of God? I mean, 
as a specific example, the churches I've attended that have held to inerrancy have also taken passages like the one in Corinthians, where Paul tells the women to cover their heads, as being something that is culturally relative and does not apply to us today. Is this just inconsistent hermeneutic? Or could it be holding the word of God as both inerrant and situational? Thanks to both of you for keeping these conversations alive in the church. I really appreciate how God has used both your ministries. Hello, everybody. It's really good to be here with you to uh, answer some questions or at least try to answer some questions that you all sent in to Science Mike. And uh, it's my pleasure to be here to to take a crack at these. Uh, I want to thank Science Mike for asking me to do this and also for giving me a really cool name, Bible Pete. Although it doesn't quite have the ring, I think, that Science Mike does, I guess. It sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Bible Pete. But uh, I mean, you know, what are the options? God Pete? Jesus Pete? Trinity Pete? That's not going to work. So this is the best option out of all those. So I'm happy to have it. So Bible Pete it is, at least for today. Um, all right. The first question uh, that I want to try to take a crack at is a very, very good one. It's a common one, meaning it's a good question. You know, questions that are asked a lot, I think, are questions that are worth discussing and going over a lot because, you know, obviously a lot of people think about this. But, you know, whether it's possible to see the Bible as situational and also as the divinely inspired and inerrant Word of God. And I just, you know, I don't want to start a fight right off the bat here, but, you know, for me, I think the word inerrant doesn't help in this discussion because there's a lot of baggage attached to it. You know, I'm not an inerrantist. Uh, I don't think it's a helpful term. I don't think it's a good descriptor of what the Bible is doing. And I think it really, you know, I, I think I understand divinely inspired, and maybe a better word is authoritative, like it has value for guiding us in faith and life, and and we have to take it seriously uh, no matter what we do. I do agree with those things. But inerrant for me is just a term that gets thrown in that almost guarantees that a discussion like this can't even get off the ground. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's at least my experience. Uh, you know, inerrancy sounds like it's sort of a safe place religiously, spiritually to land until, forgive me, until you start, you know, reading the Bible and then you see that, my goodness gracious, it's not really inerrant for me in telling me what to do. It's it's actually, well, like the question says, it's situational, right? And And that's where the interesting discussion begins. So I'd rather rephrase the question a little bit to say, how can the Bible be situational, which it most definitely is, and still function in some way as that text, which is right with us as we try to navigate this life of faith, that helps us understand what to believe and how to act. I think that's that's a different kind of question, perhaps. So, first of all, you know, the Bible is absolutely situational. I'll always remember when I was in seminary, one of my professors, uh, we were talking about Paul's letters, and he said, you know, remember when you're reading Paul's letters, you're reading somebody else's mail. And that goes for more or less anything we see in the Bible. It's not written to us. You know, I, I I understand that, you know, many Christians have the view that the Bible is sort of God's love letter to me. 
And I understand that because you want to connect with it and see its relevance for your life. I don't knock that at all, but primarily it's not God's love letter to us. It's a series and collection of texts that were written by ancient people of faith who were trying to understand themselves and their place in the world and who God is and why God seems so mysterious. And, you know, back in the old days, he used to show up and do wonderful things. And now today we're struggling with him. And the Bible does all sorts of things like that. It it is situational. It's written by people at a particular point in time or times, plural, uh, for certain situations to address the realities of life around them and how to navigate that from the perspective of faith in their God, which I think is not a downer. I think that's a beautiful description of what the Bible is and how the Bible works. The way I'm putting it now, I'm trying to summarize this a bit, the situational nature of the Bible is uh, I'm working on a book now as we speak. Don't ask me too much about it because I'm having a tug of war with it right now. But the Bible has certain characteristics that really show us the situational character, and that is the Bible is ambiguous, the Bible is ancient, and the Bible is diverse. The Bible is ambiguous because when you really sit down to look at it, it's like it's not entirely clear a lot of the times, and uh, it, it doesn't really tell you what to do or think very often. You know, I I think of things like, you know, pick almost any law of the Old Testament, you know, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, do no work on it. Okay, that's, okay, that's fine. um, But what does it mean to work? You know, what if you have to feed your family? I mean, is there any leeway to this, right? It's it's not telling you what to do. It's saying, you know, here's sort of like an idea, here's a principle, here's a general guideline, but you have to work it out for yourself. You know, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, which are uh, one of my favorite places in the book of Proverbs says, you know, do not answer a fool or you'll sort of join him in his folly or answer a fool because otherwise he's going to be wise in his own eyes. So answer a fool, don't answer. Well, what do you do, right? It, well, it's, it's not clear. And in fact, this text is not giving us a direction or a command or something clear to do. It's actually revealing something about the Bible that fits right in with the situational nature. Namely, that sometimes you just have to figure things out. You know, God's not a helicopter parent, and the Bible's not this helicopter parenting manual of you know, how to make sure everybody does the right thing all the time. Right? So it's situational because it's, it's ambiguous, and it's ambiguous in part because it's ancient. It comes, from, comes to us from a time long, long ago. And you know sometimes it's hard to know what to do with these ancient texts that have laws and stories that presume things like kingdoms and battles and, and prophets and temples and priests and and a Roman Empire, or a Greek Empire, or a Persian, or Babylonian, or a Syrian, or Egyptian. These are things from such a long time ago. You know, the time of David, for example, is um, about 1000 BC. I mean, we're removed from David's time 3000 years backwards in time, in the same way that we're we're removed from the year 5000 in front of us, right? The year 5000 AD, we're as far away from that unbelievable number as we are backwards from the time of David. These are ancient texts in ancient times, and they befuddle us sometimes. They invite us 
to engage the text, right? To, to, to work through it to see how does this connect, or in some cases, does it even connect? You know, this, this Bible seems set up to invite us to think about what it means to live a life of faith in a way that inerrancy doesn't quite cut it for me. But there's, this is the, that's the authoritative dimension of the Bible, which I know it sounds a little bit weird to speak the way I am now and then say authority with the next breath, but it's an authority for inviting us into this needed conversation about what does it mean to live the life of faith. And this Bible shows us ancient people sort of struggling with that in their own ways, in their own ambiguous ways, in their own ancient ways. And we have to transpose this ancient message into our time and place. You know, one very quick example, if it helps, okay? You know, we know that the Bible is basically a patriarchal text. And I say that with no judgment. It's patriarchal because it's ancient, and it reflects those ancient cultures. And you have Paul saying things like, you know, uh, women should not, you know, publicly teach men and, you know, wait till you get home if you have some questions and that sort of thing, Paul says. And, you know, there are probably cultural reasons for that because of the way the social dynamic was set up in first century Greco-Roman culture. You know, you would cause a, a, a deep offense, perhaps socially, for the spread of the gospel if you were to neglect this social convention, right? But, you know, we have to today transpose that idea to a different culture and different context. So today, it's not socially uncouth to say that, well, men and women are of equal status. There is no social hierarchy of one above the other. They're both equal. Women run companies. You know, there are prominent positions of authority and notoriety and wealth and all these other kinds of things, and education, certainly. You know, so, so for us today to, to uh, you know, to follow, let's say, Paul, Paul's, quote, inerrant or authoritative word, we might have to do the exact opposite of what Paul did or what Paul said. We might, right? In fact, I think we do. We have to do something different because the cultural moment calls for something else. And that brings us to, you know, to the last point. The Bible is diverse, meaning it doesn't agree with itself. It doesn't say the same thing about everything. And the reason why is because the Bible was written at different times, different places, by different people for different reasons, and you're bound to have some diversity. You know, my, my favorite example is comparing the, the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. Jonah is all about, you know, the book of Jonah, not Jonah the prophet, but the book of Jonah is all about showing God's mercy and inclusion to the hated Ninevites, the capital of the hated Assyrians. And that's sort of the lesson of the story that, you know, God cares for them as well, whereas in the book of Nahum, the world is cheering because God destroyed Nineveh. How do you reconcile those two? Well, they're diverse, but you reconcile them not by trying to harmonize them, but just by recognizing they're written at different times and places for different reasons. You know, the book of Jonah is probably a post-exilic book written after the experience of exile where the Judahites are probably thinking, you know, Maybe God is bigger than simply our tribal God. Maybe there's something more going on here than God is our personal property. 
right? So what we see in the Bible is this beautiful diversity that can get covered up if we have too strong a view of like divine inspiration means the Bible always has to agree and it always has to be on the same page. It doesn't. You know, the Bible's ambiguous, it's ancient and diverse. And as a result, I think a better way of sort of not just recognizing begrudgingly the situational nature of the Bible, not begrudgingly, but embracing it. And I hate using that word because it's so, you know, hackneyed, but, you know, celebrating and embracing the situational nature of the Bible as something positive to teach us about how we can engage this divinely inspired text for our moment. This is why I think a much better model for understanding the nature of the Bible is not inerrant. And I'm even going to leave out apart things like divinely inspired or revelation or all those buzzwords, those code words we'd like to use. I'd rather think of the Bible as a book of wisdom. And wisdom is just that beautiful new, uh, new and Old Testament concept that basically says God, you know, the Spirit of God trains us to live well, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and all those things, to really embrace life God's way and to learn that as we go along. I think life is about learning to live life God's way. And the Bible is not sort of the field guide manual to sort of, you know, follow everything here and you'll get there. It's actually modeling for us that journey, right? I think all of us have a sacred responsibility to work out what it means to follow the Bible well and to live in God's way. We have a sacred responsibility, and we see that already modeled in the pages of the Bible itself. So to get back to the question, is it possible to see the Bible as situational and also as God's Word? I don't think we have a choice. I don't think it's, not only is it possible to, it's, it's beautiful that it is that way. Right? The Bible is situational. There's no question about that. The, the real question is, what can we then learn about the nature of faith and about God and about our lives from its situational character? And that is the task of theology and the task of biblical interpretation. That's not something that can be answered in a pamphlet, but you know that's why we study and read the Bible. So anyway, great question, and I'm glad to have taken a poke at it. Hello, Science Mike. I'm a relatively new listener of your podcast, but being a seeking agnostic with a passion for knowledge of the world, uh, understanding it through science uh, and religion, I find your show fascinating and hugely important um, to the world today. So I appreciate what you do. I've also had a chance to listen to your book on Audible um, and found it. Uh, inspirational, and I really appreciate the honesty that you put forth uh, in in the book as well. Um, my question is probably a good one for Ask Bible Pete on that upcoming episode, uh, and it has to do with some of the things that you've said, whether it be in your book or on your podcast, about following uh, Jesus' teachings uh, or um, saying these are things that Jesus said, uh, and so on. And I'm wondering, in your in your research or as you read the Bible, um, 
how do you decipher uh, what actually Jesus said or what do you take to be important um, when we really don't know what Jesus said, considering he has no writings uh, associated with him directly. Uh, we have various gospel writers and we have theology of Paul. And so I'm wondering how you um, make sense of all that. Um, and this is maybe may where Pete comes in as well, uh, as I know there is some biblical scholarship around um, researching uh, what we know or what we think we know of what Jesus may have actually said versus what was actually placed in the Bible. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. Uh, you're able to come up with an answer on that and have a good discussion. Again, I appreciate what you do and hope to hear you on the podcast. Thanks. Okay, our next question is another very good one. How do we know or how do we decide what Jesus actually said? And here's one of these questions. I'm going to have to um, avoid it as much as I can. Now, I'm going to try to answer it, but this is very much how I put the pieces together and others will see it differently. That goes without saying, I think all these questions, I could say, preface it the same way. But this is a tough one. Uh, you know, it's been a major theme of New Testament scholarship for, you know, a couple of hundred years now to sort of ferret out what did Jesus actually say and trying to decide by criteria that seem to change with the wind, uh, you know, how to make those kinds of decisions. You know, when you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very, very similar, and yet they're very, very different in some places. And, you know, those similarities and differences are things that lead scholars to sort of make certain decisions, that there are certain things that Jesus would have said, and there are certain things that just sound later. You know, I mean, one of the examples of things that sound later for a lot of people is, uh, you know, what were called the Olivet Discourses, where Jesus gets very apocalyptic towards the end of the uh, of the Gospels, and, uh, you know, talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and things like that. And, of course, it did happen, but in the year AD 70, which suggests to a lot of scholars that this is something that shows a later reflection on the part of the Gospel writers. That's just an example, you know. Frankly, I'm not sure where I stand on some of that stuff, but it is a question because, you know, the Gospels were probably written, you know, a generation or so after the time of Jesus. And, you know, it's it's a tough one to, to, to crack. And, you know, if you get down to it, really, you know, how do we know? I think the answer is we don't. I don't think you can actually know what Jesus said and what Jesus didn't say. You know, there's, you can't sort of put onto this empirical evidence uh, to determine. You know, there's no criteria for Jesus or for any historical figure to actually know what they actually said, what came out of their mouths. So we're always going to be dealing with, I think, this uh, delicate situation of the words of Jesus on the one hand, on the other hand, the Gospels that we have, which are which reflect the theology of the gospel writers. And I, I think that's inevitable. Now, taking a step back from that, I think, you know, we should probably think about the nature of all history writing, of all historiography, especially ancient history, and especially when we're dealing with not like 
raw events of battles and things like that, but of personalities of people. And when you tell those stories of influential people, it's never going to be free of later points of view. You know, you can pick any reasonably contemporary figure like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi and people write biographies about them. They can interview people who knew them, but they put the pieces together in ways that uh, satisfy their own agendas. And I use agenda in a neutral sense. We all have agendas and purposes for why we communicate important things. So, you know, to, to suggest that the Gospels are going to avoid that. You know, they're not going to participate in that same kind of historiography that is universal, you know, is is probably an expectation that is is unreasonable. Now, some might say, well, yeah, but it's inspired by God, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, then the obvious response is, yeah, but there are four of them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, whatever you might think or any of the listeners here might think about divine inspiration of the Bible and God revealing uh, his will to the writers to write things down, the fact is that you have four of them and they don't get along. They don't get along, but they don't say the same thing. You know, you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, you know, perennial differences in how they talk about Jesus and what they include, what they don't include. Even if they include the same things, they're different at times. And then you have John who's like off in his own, you know, place someplace. He's off in the cabins writing almost on his own. And, you know, the historical nature of that and what did Jesus say and was there really an upper room discourse that lasted several chapters? You know, all those kinds of things come up and they're legitimate questions. But, you know, we have these four Gospels and I think it's better to think of them as from beginning to end a theological, let's put it this way, a theological representation of Jesus for a given community. Rather than, well, let's ferret out what Jesus really said and didn't say. You know, we have red-letter Bibles, right? The words of Jesus. Well, the scholarly red-letter Bible is going to be a lot smaller than that, you know? And and rather trying to make that hyper-red-letter Bible, I, you know, I think we just have the Gospels that we have, and they are they are so thoroughly, you know, the, the theological purposes of the individual gospel writers, it's baked into the pages. You can't just extricate it, you know? So, you know, you, you're going to find things in the gospels like invention of dialogue, you know? I mean, no one was taking notes when Jesus was talking, you know? That's not what they did back then. There were no pads. There was, you know, nothing to do that with. And, and you know, to think that ancient people would remember everything that was said, that's nonsense. They, they, they didn't. They remembered the gist of things, but then they created dialogue around it, or they talked to eyewitnesses or other people, and they created dialogue around these things. So you have that. And it's hard to know, you know, at what point is dialogue created out of whole cloth? At what point is it a representation of exactly what was said? At what point is it a mishmash or whatever? You can never tell that. Forgive me. That's that's my opinion. That's where I'm going to get into trouble with some people. I just don't think we can ever tell that. You know, the gospel writers, they they invent scenes they or they put scenes in different orders and they connect them differently and they give different slants, right? I mean, it's so thoroughly theologized, these gospels, that you know, it, it's to me, it becomes really, I, I would hate the job of having to try to figure out what Jesus, quote, actually said and what he didn't actually say. A, a few years ago, I was reading a book, which I highly recommend, by um, a Roman Catholic scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, called The Real Jesus. 
And I allude to this a little bit in my book, The Bible Tells Me So, for a page or two, because I had to deal with this issue. And um, you know, not that it's worth running out and getting that book for two pages, although uh, you should get it anyway. But anyway, I'm not here to sell things. Okay, back to the topic. Uh, the real Jesus, what, what Johnson says in a nutshell is that the Jesus that we have are these four representations, period. And they come to us from a later time, and this I think is a profound point, from a later time when these writers have had the opportunity to, to reflect on the significance of Jesus. You know, the, the gospel writers, if they say anything, they're pretty unanimous in the fact that the, uh, the disciples were clueless. Most people were pretty clueless about Jesus. They didn't seem to get it, right? So, and I can imagine, like, maybe being back in the first century and and certainly not getting it either, right? And what you have with the gospel writers is not, don't think of it as, like, later and therefore off-the-wall crazy, have no connection with the historical Jesus, but maybe Jesus was actually a highly significant historical figure who did amazing things and started a movement that is, you know, has become sort of big (laughs) over the past 2,000 years, right? Maybe someone of that sort of magnanimity, it, it took time to sort of digest and to think and then to see maybe what the Spirit of God is doing in the life of people in the first century for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then you're writing it down. You know, it's better to write a biography of Kennedy in 2015 than in 1965. Maybe there's an ability to reflect a little bit. See, what we have in the Gospels, let me put this another way. I think what we have is enactments of Jesus. We have performances of Jesus. And I find that to be not frustrating, but again, just the way history is, but also very encouraging, at least to me spiritually, because, you know, what we do is, you know, I think we have to take those scripts, those performances, those enactments very seriously. But we also have to accept the responsibility, which I think is a sacred responsibility, of thinking about, okay, how do we enact Jesus today? How do we perform this gospel in the culture around us? Taking our, our, our cue from the gospel writers themselves who are doing that very thing, talking about Jesus for audiences, not for global publication, but for moments and times and places and situations that made sense. And I think we have the responsibility to do the same thing. We've come a little far, perhaps, from the original question, but I think this all ties together, at least it does for me. How do we know what Jesus actually said? We don't, but tough. That's the, the nature of historiography, and we have four Gospels, and they're all telling us something of significance, and the fact that they don't always get along, that they have contradictory moments, so be it. Life is like that, too. And for those of you who believe in God, you have to sort of accept that if God is going to have some hand in producing a text, look at what God gave us. Look at what we have, you know. And now we take that as our clue, not to try to ferret out, well, what did Jesus actually say? Or how can we mesh these Gospels together to make one big one out of it so we sort of have the one straight Jesus, but to embrace the fourness of it and to to then take that responsibility to 
uh, to likewise think about our time and our context. And there's an awful lot of things that I think Jesus can say in the world that we're living in today. Hi, Bible Pete. This is Kyle in Rochester, New York. My question about the Bible is in regards to how important it is for me to have a relationship with it. I have outgrown the conservative evangelical understanding of the Bible from my youth, but I don't feel drawn to develop a new relationship with it at this point. I've recently read many books about the Bible, including yours, and I'm fascinated by how all the ancient world history, geography, anthropology, traditions, and language can point to what is really meant by the Bible as opposed to what I was handed earlier in life. While all that is interesting, I can't help but feel like I would need to spend a lifetime studying first century customs, economics, or agriculture just to have a chance to understanding one small part. It makes sense that people in those times would understand progressive new ideas through those stories, and I believe its themes and ideas can be relevant to me once they are mined out. But as someone that's not living in those times, is it really worth that much to me? It feels like it wasn't written for me. Wouldn't I be better off reading the stories that actually are being written for me as a person living in my time? Oh, and by the way, both my parents went to Eastern, so go Eagles. Thank you. Okay, our next question from Kyle. I do need to mention Kyle's name because his parents went to Eastern University where I teach. Go Eagles. Anyway, okay, the question is about having a relationship with the Bible after you're learning a bunch of new stuff and it's hard to have a relationship with the Bible. That's sort of a, a quick summary as I see the question with a lot of excellent, excellent sort of subpoints to that. But um, yeah, you know, once you sort of start seeing things differently, it's hard to have the same kind of relationship with the Bible that you once had. I absolutely get that. And a lot of uh, the, the the difficulty and the pressure and the challenge that people feel who have been raised in, let's say, you know, evangelical or fundamentalist context is sort of re-engaging the Bible in ways that are meaningful. And that's hard because the way you're engaging it in the new way is the way you're always told was the wrong way. You know, <laughs> So it's, it's very, very difficult to... Um, to sort of reinvent that. And, and you know, one point Kyle says, you know, I'm not really drawn to a new relationship with the Bible at the moment. And that may be like, you know, after a breakup, you don't want to just boomerang back to something else. You might want to take a break. You know, I don't, I don't mind saying that. I've said that to many people, and I felt that myself too, just taking a break from having to figure this out. And taking a break from the Bible and and taking a break from all that stress of like, you know, I've got to get this back in order now. See, that's the old you talking at that point who has to have it all sort of closed in and making sense. Take a break from all that and maybe just assume that God's on your side and and you're going to have time to think through this. Now, in other words, for me, the issue is it's really the way the Bible was taught that makes it so difficult to look at new information and to sort of absorb that and to think through it. It's not the Bible itself, right? It's, it's, it's just the, the model of Bible that you were taught. And, you know, I'm going to say by well-intended people, I just don't think it works. You know, I, I remember thinking this, and other people have voiced this too, that, you know, you go to, you know, a, a, an evangelical and you go to maybe a college or something, or in my case, it was graduate school, 
and the the paradigm, the model of the Bible that I had begun questioning anyway at my point in in, in life, but uh, was still pretty much where my home was. Um, you know that that Bible, that way of thinking about it, began to unravel literally within about a month by listening to some lectures and reading some articles or books and beginning to read some Hebrew guided by teachers who, you know, had the Hebrew Bible memorized and things like that. And it's not that I was overwhelmed by, you know, the pressure of caving in. It's just that they were presenting things that made sense. And, you know, other people have that same experience, uh, maybe at different levels uh, or maybe for different reasons, but you know, if you have a way of thinking about the Bible, not the Bible itself, but if you have a way of thinking about it that can't handle new information that is widely accepted by people who think through this stuff a lot, you know, maybe the problem, again, is not the Bible, but it's the way it was taught. Uh, one of the things that the, Kyle brings out, and again, it's a very good point, is like, you know, do I have to be a scholar to, <laughs> to you know, get a handle on all this stuff? And, you know, do I have to, you know, go to graduate school or spend my time digging into this ancient context and trying to understand it? And um, this actually dovetails nicely with another question that was asked about study Bibles and and how to sort of access this information easily. And let me say that I, I do think that, no, you don't have to be a scholar and spend your life doing this, but, you know, it's nice to have study Bibles with maps and with uh, charts and with all sorts of explanatory footnotes. You know, it's wonderful to know sort of what a Pharisee is. You know, when you're reading the Gospels, it's sort of nice to know what the Greco-Roman world was like when you're reading Paul's letters. It's sort of nice to know who the Assyrians were and the Babylonians were and how Israel fits in its ancient context. And, you know, study Bibles are, are they're wonderful, wonderful things. They're designed for that sort of thing. You know, I, I recommend a few. I, I, you know, have several of them myself, but the ones that I happen to like the most are the HarperCollins Study Bible is very good. Uh, the Jewish Publication Society uh, has its own Jewish Study Bible. Of course, that's just the Old Testament, but um, or the Hebrew Bible, I should say. Uh, but you know, just the notes there and the essays are just worth the price of the book. Um, the New Testament version of that is the Jewish Annotated New Testament, and likewise, just very helpful essays and notes. I would also recommend something like the New Interpreter Study Bible, which is another one that I use. Um, the Most of those are not the Jewish Study Bible, but the others that I mentioned work off of the New Revised Standard Version, which is a, a translation I happen to like. Uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, it doesn't seem to be very apologetic. It's not perfect. No translation's perfect, but it's pretty good. But I'm not really hung up on translations that much uh, because, you know, they all have their issues. But it, the study Bibles, the notes, are actually very good guides to get on board with things. And, and you know, it's it's helpful to know that historical context. And, you know, even if it's annoying... Not that it is for Kyle, but I'm just saying even it's like it's too much work to do. Too bad because, you know, we live at a point in time in history for the past three, four hundred years and even a little bit longer where we've had this sort of historical consciousness and the study of Christianity and Judaism and religion in general has been absorbed into that mindset. And, you know, you can't make believe that it's 1387, right? We, we live when we live, where we live, how we live, and we might have, 
you know, the burden of historical information, the burden of archaeology, the burden of anthropology, the burden of science, all these things. Um, we are in a position, like it or not, to have to do some homework, perhaps, to sort of engage these texts in a responsible way. Uh, but that will also yield, I think, tremendous fruit and insight in terms of what these ancient texts are saying. You know, for, for me, studying antiquity and, and looking into this stuff helps me have that relationship with the Bible, because sometimes I look at this and I say, man, knowing something about the ancient world helps me understand what the theology of these writers is and how I can access it, how I can, um, you know, uh, bring that theological energy into my life, or vice versa, see myself in the context of this theological energy that the Bible has. And, you know, I, that's why I think, you know, that stuff is really worth it. Which sort of gets to another point that Kyle was making that, you know, and it's a good one, the Bible is so ancient, it's clearly not written for me, why bother? And, you know, that's, you know, on a certain level, that's very true, because you have stories of sacrifices and temples, again, and battles and, you know, empires that don't exist anymore, who cares, you know, but, you know, on, the, on one level, I think it's important to remember that, you know, leaving Christianity out of it, um, ancient wisdom is not a bad thing. And I answered in another question, uh, at least I said in another question, might not have answered it, uh, how the Bible as a source of wisdom, as a wisdom book, makes a lot more sense to me. And if we think of the Bible as a, as a wisdom book, and a wisdom book from an ancient time and place, it's sort of, it, it it's disorienting because we think of our own time and place as like being the be-all and end-all, but it's not. And sometimes having to think outside of our own circumstances, outside of what we assume to be true and right and good in this world, to transpose ourselves back into another time and place, so to speak, to try to glimpse something of the nature of God from a very different perspective, but then bring it back to our world. You know, I think to me, that's sort of why that's worth it. You know, uh, you know, the, the Bible itself does that sort of thing. The, the Bible is a growing kind of text. And what I mean by that is you have a lot of instances in the Bible where, you know, later writers are looking back at these ancient words and texts and rethinking them for a new audience. And, you know, my favorite example, which I could go on for two hours, but give me 30 seconds, is the book of Chronicles, which is a history of Israel that is very, very different from the history we find in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But it's written probably a few hundred years later for different time and place. You know, so what I, what I mean by that is that within the Bible itself, you already see this, this, um, commitment on the part of people of faith of antiquity to go back to even earlier times and to rethink them for themselves. You know, it, it is true, and I've learned this from so many people, one of whom most recently is Walter Brueggemann, who's, you know, I think just a, a wonderful, thoughtful, and prolific uh, Old Testament theologian, but thinking of the Bible as this ongoing dialogue of movement, of change, of movement from antiquity to some current time and place. You know, what is the New Testament if it's not that? You know, there's so many things that sort of change. This is a Jewish book, the New Testament. It's written essentially by Jews. And 
and the you know what is the new testament if, if if it's not some shifting and changing of of the older story like circumcision or dietary laws right those ancient things are now rethought because there's an ongoing dialogue in the bible about what god is up to and and i think you know judaism this is one of my hobby horses but judaism has a uh, a history of of i think being much better than christianity in terms of understanding that ongoing dialogue and debate you know, this is where you have the, the Hebrew Bible, the what we call the Old Testament, and then, you know, as time moves on, you, you have the canon, it's there, you're not going to mess with it, but you have to keep thinking and engaging these texts. And that's where we get, you know, Jewish, uh, ancient Jewish documents also of things like the Mishnah and the Talmud. And, you know, Judaism is this ongoing Talmudic dialogue with these ancient traditions and what it means to engage them responsibly today. You know, so I, I think the fact that the Bible is ancient, absolutely true. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's the nature of Christianity and Judaism to keep engaging these things for our current time and place. Maybe another way to sum up too, I think the question uh, that Kyle is asking is a very good one. And without suggesting that Kyle himself thinks this way, because he's clearly moving in his own thinking away from this, he's not there. But the question still presumes, I think, a fundamentalist view of the Bible, that that it's a book of information that's supposed to be somewhat timeless, and then to be memorized, maybe unquestionably accepted just as is, without taking the responsibility to engage it for your time and place. You know, when we think of the Bible that way, which is the common way that a lot of Christians, at least in the West, have been taught to think about the Bible, especially in America, have we been taught to think about the Bible, then when you hear new things that sort of rock that way of thinking about the Bible, then it's hard to engage the Bible again. Again, the problem is the paradigm. The problem is how you're taught to think about the Bible. The problem is what we've been told we have to expect from the Bible. The problem is really not the Bible itself. I think the Bible actually, when properly understood and just when paid attention to, deconstructs that way of thinking uh, that causes so many problems for us today. So anyway, great question. I really appreciate it. Hey, Mike. Hey, Pete. Uh, my name is Zach, and I'm a huge fan of both of you. Really excited to listen to this episode. Uh, my question is pretty simple. Uh, I'm an ex-Calvinist who thankfully over the last couple of years has let go uh, for, of the belief of biblical inerrancy. Um, and I'm just curious, are there any good and concrete reasons that I should continue to disregard um, writings like the Gnostic Gospels or sort of any other non-canonical um, Judeo-Christian scripture. I'd like to use like every tool at my disposal to learn more about Jesus and early Christianity and, and ancient Judaism, um, but I'd like to better understand the context for these writings in order to help me sort of build the lens through which I should view them. Um, thanks. That's it. Okay, now on to our next question about the Gnostic Gospels and other non-canonical texts, and what are we to make of all those? Well, good question <laughs> again. Uh, a lot of what I do deals with texts outside of the 
Protestant or Jewish canon. One of those, you know, it's sort of popular because it shows up in Time Magazine or the History Channel, is uh, what are called today the Gnostic Gospels. And if you want to know what Gnosticism is all about, Google it. That's a whole 10 or 15 hour podcast series. But, and also, I'm no expert in that. I, I don't want to sort of jump into things uh, that, you know, I just don't feel um, completely comfortable pontificating on. Let me stick to things I like pontificating on. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, these texts were discovered, you know, in the 20, mid 20th century. Uh, a bunch of texts, I think 50 or so uh, texts uh, from Egypt that. Uh, present a Jesus different than the Gospels that we see, usually a bunch of, like, sayings, wise sayings of Jesus. And, you know, again, I'm no expert in that, but I think, you know, a lot of controversy about these because, you know, they're hailed as like, well, here's maybe this is giving us the real Jesus or this or that, and other people saying, no, no, it's not the real Jesus, whatever. Um, I'm not too big on that sort of debate, uh, you know, a, a lot of, you know, the conservative reaction is like, well, they're not actually gospels, they're just strings of saying something like Proverbs or something like that. And that's true. I mean, the gospels, the, the gospels we have are narratives, they're stories, they're sort of biographies, and these are not that. But I think the value in them is to see something of the diversity of people claiming the name Christian in the ancient world. And, you know, th these texts, who knows when they were written? It's actually, you know, people debate these things, but, you know, some say e even like the, the latter part of the first century, some of these texts were written and others maybe, you know, in the two, three, four hundred years after that. Uh, it seems that, you know, they went out of circulation, sort of went into hiding uh, you know, maybe in the fourth century, they were condemned after, you know, the Christian church more or less started to unify what it believed in its doctrines that we see in, you know, some of the, the big ecumenical councils like, you know, Nicaea, which gave us the Nicene Creed and things like that. So, you know, the, the focus is typically on, well, it's not part of the Bible, the early church decided it's to forget about it. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't read the Gnostic Gospels, but, you know, I will say that, again, it says something about the diversity of Christianity from a very, very early point. And to me, that's very instructive because we have diversity in the church really from the very beginning. We sometimes think of even the New Testament as this pristine time where everybody's seeing things the same and everybody's on the same page and there's no debate and no nothing. You know, that that's just not true. You know, you, you have diversity going back to the earliest documents that we have in the New Testament. Again, it's hard to know exactly which ones are the oldest, but like Galatians and, and you know, First Thessalonians and, and James even are considered to be among the earlier written texts. And you read Galatians and Paul's not a happy camper because People are not seeing things eye to eye. In fact, he seems to have had a major fallout with Peter. I mean, think about that. You know, Peter and Paul are not seeing eye to eye. And I'm convinced that James has an issue with uh, Paul, or at least with how some people may have understood Paul, because, you know, Paul's all about, you know, grace not by works. And James says, yeah, show me your faith, you know, without your works, and I'll show you my faith 
by my works and even quotes the same Old Testament passage that Paul deals with in Genesis. It's like, it's almost like, I think James sort of has Paul in his sights. And I, I think of this, you know, getting back to the Gnostic Gospels and these other texts outside of the canon, I think they're showing us something about the real life down to earth diversity of thinking in the uh, among the followers of Jesus from the very beginning. I don't know if that's comforting or not, but to me it is because again this is just so raw and there's no moment to get back to where everyone was on the same page. The disciples weren't on the same page for heaven's sake. You know, keep reading back in the Old Testament, it's all about conflict and dissension and diversity that results from it. You know, and and in that sense, for me, the Gnostic Gospels is okay. Listen, you know, people thought of Jesus in very different ways in antiquity, and in, in I think for us today, when we're struggling of how to engage this gospel in our contemporary context, it, it's I don't know. It, it's sort of nice to look at the entire history of the Christian Church, not just the ancient Church, but how there have always been fights and I'm not advocating fighting but you know it's it's there and 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 rifts and disagreements and people going in different directions because you know there's always been this diversity you know so this is to me just another example of that it just happens to be very ancient and time magazine exaggerates its importance i think but you know other non-canonical texts and boy are there a lot i mean just you know for starters just the apocrypha which is uh, means hidden things, and it's you know part of the Roman Catholic tradition and also the Orthodox tradition, not the Protestant or Jewish tradition, because Protestantism got its Old Testament from the Jewish tradition during the Reformation because the Reformers didn't want to be Roman Catholic. So they got rid of these apocryphal books, uh, which are books like you know Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, the Wisdom of Solomon, Tobit, you know, a couple of extra psalms, uh, the prayer of Manasseh, they're about like 15, 16, 17, depending how you count them. First, second, third, fourth, Maccabees, you know, history of, of, of the Greek period of the Old Testament from about 200 on. So, you know, the, these texts are there and, uh, you know, they're taken as scripture by these traditions, uh, maybe a slightly lesser status than the other books, but they're still part of their collection that has spiritual value. And, you know, the longer I live, the more I, I see the wisdom, I think, in some of those texts and being a part of the Christian tradition too, because they sort of connect the time of Israel and the divided kingdom and the exile and all that. They sort of connect that to the New Testament, because there's a lot of stuff that happened in those hundreds of years in between the Testaments, so to speak. And they have them there. And, you know, I tell you, I wrote my dissertation on the wisdom of Solomon. It's a great book. Uh, you know, Ecclesiasticus, or the wisdom of Ben Sirah, that, that's an amazing uh, piece of literature about wisdom and what it means to live a wise life. And, 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 you know, at least for Jews living in the second century BC under Greek rule. You know, and and it's it's amazing, and I think it's it's worthwhile to read. And I got to be honest with you, I, I I'm not sure how Song of Solomon made the cut, <laughs> probably because it was thought to have been written by Solomon, which is unlikely. But um, you know, it's you know that's a book like you have to sort of like be embarrassed about and shuffle around because it's basically about sex. Not that that's bad, you know, but it's just you know why is it in there and we're missing things in the apocrypha, so. No, I'm not converting to Roman Catholicism or Orthodoxy. 
I've got enough things on my plate right now. Anyway, so, okay, the, these texts, these extra canonical texts, there are many others, we don't need to go through them, but the fact is that they they give us an understanding of the context of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, you know, in the Old Testament, knowing something about Neo-Assyrian treaties actually helps us understand why the book of Deuteronomy looks the way that it does. Knowing something about the Judaism of, you know, the first century of the Christian era and the century or two or three before that, knowing something about Judaism and their struggles and their hopes and their fears and their tensions and their arguments, it really puts Paul, for example, in a different perspective. And scholars even call that a new perspective, to look at Paul from the point of view of these of this ancient context, which we know something about from these non-canonical texts that are out there that need to be read. And it's just, you know, it's invaluable for, you know, understanding the, the, the pro- deeply problematic statement of Paul's, which is recurring, that dietary restrictions are no longer necessary to be the people of God. Specifically, Gentiles don't need to keep dietary restrictions and, you know, Jews can, they don't have to, they're welcome to, it's part of the tradition, but it's not needed. And, and I think of, uh, um, you know, a text like Second Maccabees chapter 7, which is one of these apocryphal texts, and how this talks about the martyrdom of a mother and her seven sons for refusing to give up their kosher laws, their dietary restrictions when faced with certain death. So, you know, I think understanding something of that moment, of that context, you read Paul and you say, goodness gracious, is he trying to make enemies? If he's trying to convince Jews, he's not doing a very good job of it, right? So I I think these things really do illumine biblical texts. You know, it's not a magic bullet, but it helps us understand something of uh, of this moment this glimpse, this snapshot of the past that we have in our New Testament. And I think, you know, maybe to put it this way to sum up, what I think about these non-canonical texts, including the Gnostic Gospels, which are Christian, um, they're reminders of others of antiquity, uh, people of faith, not just troublemakers, but trying to work it out, right? Reminders of others grappling with their faith in changing contexts, whether, you know, during the Old Testament time or during the New Testament time or thereafter. And that hasn't ended. That hasn't stopped. We're still doing that. In fact, I think we have to, or the Bible just remains in the past. It doesn't become something we can access today. That doesn't mean everything's fine and we can't discern and debate and discuss whether you know, some of these grapplings produce good things or maybe not so good things, but that's that's certainly a matter of debate. I'm not suggesting, you know, everything and anything goes, you can say whatever you want to, but the fact of the matter is that people of faith, even within the Bible and thereafter, have been dealing with what does it mean here and now to live this life of faith in this God. And uh, canonical, non-canonical texts and Gnostic Gospels, to me, are reminders of that uh, very big and important process. 
there's three chances to see me in person this February as I'll be traveling. I'll do an Ask Science Mike Live in Orange, California, February the 7th, an Ask Science Mike Live February the 10th in Cincinnati, Ohio, and February the 23rd, I'll be at the Revive Conference in San Diego, California. You can learn more about these events by visiting AskScienceMike.com and clicking on the Events tab. Our next question for Pete came in via email, and it reads, What does the phrase translated eternal life in the New Testament mean? I've heard Rob Bell talk about the phrase meaning life of the ages and how it was meant to refer to the best possible life here and now, and also in the future. Rob's concern, which I support, is getting us away from thinking it only means life in heaven when we die. It includes present reality, quality of living. And yet, there are passages when it seems Jesus is talking about some future life after the resurrection or in the age to come. See also Luke 18 verses 29 through 30. There seems to be some tension between Jesus meaning eternal life as a here and now reality and a future reality. Thanks, Pete. Love your books and podcasts. And thanks, Mike. Love your podcast, too. Okay, next question, eternal life. Ah, uh, yes, eternal life. Yes, uh, and I agree with the question uh, that it's both now and future. In fact, I think that's a pretty fundamental and important New Testament idea. It's not just a future thing, but it's a present thing. It's, it, it deals with a quality of life because, uh, you know, the New Age... I mean, I'm going to use Paul's language here, uh, I guess maybe parroting Paul's language a bit, but um, for, for Paul, the, the new age began with Jesus's resurrection. So if you're united to Jesus um, by faith, then you are likewise participating in this resurrection age, which is something that is is very similar to this idea of eternal life already beginning now. It's a quality of life. For Paul, it's a quality of life that's summed up best by being uh, by, by saying you've been raised from the dead with Jesus. That's like Romans chapter six. So it's not an either or, you know, the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, they will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the summoning down of the kingdom here and now. The kingdom is here because the king is here. And I think that's a very important notion. To be sure, uh, eternal life and resurrection, those are also future concepts. But the point is that in principle, you've begun that journey already now by being united to this Jesus who was raised from the dead. So it's not just something for future reference. Now, uh, the question uh, referred to to Rob Bell, who uh, talks about this as well, and how this phrase eternal life is about the best possible life here and now. I have to confess, I'm not exactly sure like how Rob develops that, but let me develop that a little bit here, that the, you know, the best possible life here and now is not, you know, what televangelists might say about having several boats, but it's the best possible life here and now is paradoxical. It's what, you know, a lot of theologians call a cruciform life, uh, a life that takes the form of cruci- crucifixion, the cross. It's a life that is marked by uh, by suffering 
and resurrection. I think, you know, one of my favorite New Testament passages is in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, you know, I want to know Christ, which means for Paul, participating in his suffering, sharing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering, and as well as this power of the resurrection that uh, marks his life, right? So that's the paradox. Your life now is more marked by both triumph and suffering. Uh, Humility is a major mark of this eternal life that we begin now. Again, it's it's not like we're glowing and, and have power over other people. It's exactly the opposite. It's paradoxical. It's about self-sacrifices, about thinking of others as more important than you. It's willingly taking on the shame of being a lowly servant, just like Jesus. That's, you know, Paul's, the hymn of, uh, you know, Jesus in chapter 2 of Philippians. But, you know, it's 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 this life that is marked by being like Jesus and embodying Jesus's life in our own, which includes suffering, dying, you know, if, if need be physically, but definitely, you know, personally, emotionally, psychologically on a daily basis, and also having this, I mean, this is all mystical language, I can't possibly understand it, but having this, this, access, I guess, through the Spirit to resurrection power in the life that we live. And again, that doesn't mean it's all going to be nice and, you know, cherries and roses, because it's not, and we all know that. But, you know, this this eternal life that begins now is marked by um, the, these the trials and tribulations of this life and handling this in a Christ-like manner with humility and thinking of others as better than yourself. That's why I think, you know, it's important that idea of eternal life beginning now is very, very important because it reorients us to what it means to be transformed by the Spirit. And I think, and forgive me, folks, this sounds so horrible, but, you know, and I don't want to be like this. I got to look at myself too when I say this, but, you know, I, I just see non-eternal life Christianity all over the place. You know, when it's, you know, wrapped up in political power or in making sure the others keep out and building walls around our beliefs and, and, and uh, you know, always casting judgment on people who are outside the tribe. You know, to me, that those are not marks of the resurrection life, as Paul puts it, or eternal life, as the Gospels put it. And, uh, you know, that's why I think it's important to, to understand the presence of that, that new kind of quality of life, but also understand the marks of that life, which are very, very different than what we sometimes see. And, you know, again, for me, that's, I, I keep thinking about, I got to do this better than I'm doing, <laughs> you know, and, and that's okay. I'm, I don't feel, you know, unloved or pressured, but it's just, it's a goal, you know, to, to, to live the life that supposedly, you know, has those characteristics that mark us off as followers of Jesus. So I think this is a very important concept. And our last question for Bible Pete came in via email and it reads, What if I disagree with Jesus? I understand much of the Old Testament may be myth, legend, misguided, and I may not always agree with the Apostle Paul. But what if I even find some of Jesus' statements harsh 
polarizing, judgmental, and in my opinion, unchristlike. Of course, every text has its unique hermeneutical, but which of the following are potentially valid strategies? A. I shut up and submit because Jesus is God. B. I consider that the gospel writer might have put his own spin on things, which may not be infallible. C. I consider that something may have got lost in the process of oral tradition, copies, translations, etc. D. I do some creative hermeneutical gymnastics to look for an out, a possible reinterpretation that I'm more comfortable with. E. I assume Jesus was using a rhetorical device appropriate for the specific conversation, but maybe not take everything he said too literally or apply every statement universally. F. I consider that Jesus might not have been omniscient and could have been wrong about some things. G. I consider that Jesus represented a revelation at a certain time in human consciousness, and his spirit is guiding to new levels of truth that humanity wasn't ready for. All of the above? Other ideas? Can't wait to hear how Pete handles this one. Okay, last question, and it's a doozy. What if I disagree with Jesus? Well, pal, if you do, just give me a heads up so I can move out of the way so I don't get hit by the lightning bolt. How does that sound? Okay. Hey, just kidding. Um, (laughs) What if I disagree with Jesus? Um, Excellent question, giving all these scenarios uh, A through G, and I think they're all extremely thoughtful. I want to comment on a couple of them. I think, you know, A is wrong. Shut up and submit because Jesus is God. We'll get into that in a second. What does that mean, Jesus is God? Um, But also uh, E and F, I think, are very helpful. Um, Maybe there's a rhetorical device that's appropriate for a setting or for a time, but it's not something to be applied to every statement universally. And uh, I think that's a very wise way to look at it. And also consider that Jesus might not have been omniscient and could have been wrong about some things. Yeah, let's go there in a second. Okay. Let me set it up a little bit first, though. Um, I think, you know, this is, this is, it all comes down to who do you think Jesus is and Christology and that thing that has occupied, you know, thinkers in the church, well, since the time of Paul, you know, Um, And for us, you know, I think for us, I would put it this way, because this is language that I think we we use in the church and we we struggle with and we have to think through as well. But what what does it mean for Jesus to be God incarnate? By the way, I can't answer that. I, I to me, this is just above my pay grade. The incarnation is a mystery of faith. It's not an obvious thing, right? Just oh yeah. Jesus is God is a phrase that doesn't quite cut that. Incarnation, I think, is much more complex and much more serious than that. You know, what does it mean to take this incarnation seriously? You know, maybe this way, what are the implications? I mean, really, what are the implications of Jesus being fully and truly human? Right? Uh, you know, uh, maybe another way. What are the implications of Jesus being a real live flesh and blood human being living in first century Judea. Now, of course, I can hear, you know, a response to that and saying, well, listen, of course, Jesus was the person living at a certain time, but don't forget he was God too. 
okay, um, Jesus was more than just another guy. Maybe he was more than simply human, but he wasn't less than that either, right? This is the, we can't minimize the humanity of Jesus, which is a tendency among a lot of Christians, frankly, to right away go to, well, Jesus is God. So everything you say about God, you say about Jesus. Um, That's a bit problematic when you read the Gospels, right? When Jesus finds things out, he figures things out, and he prays to the Father, he doesn't pray to himself, and all that sort of stuff. You know, yeah, Jesus, okay, more than simply human, but he was fully human as well. And you know, that's, we just, we can't overlook that, you know, and, and when somebody's actually a human being, a way to put that is that they are limited by their humanity. We all are. Every human being, no human being is omniscient, right? Jesus was clearly not omniscient. You know, read the Gospels, you know, and, and, you know, he even talks about things he doesn't know about, it's, it's up to the Father, not up to him, he doesn't know. He's limited because of his humanity. And, you know, because of that, you know, he had to learn things. He had to figure things out. Jesus grew up just like anybody else and came to a certain consciousness and I think was, you know, endowed by God with a special status. Um, you know, I don't want to try to, you know, parse out exactly what all that could mean, but, you know, maybe at his baptism or earlier, or, you know, according to Paul, it's at his resurrection. That's when he was, you know, endowed with this title Lord. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter one, the first few verses. So, you know, I, I think the question of what it means for Jesus to be God incarnate is is a mystery. It's difficult, but one thing we do understand, and that's humanity. And to be fully human means to be limited, it means to learn. I think simply saying, well, Jesus is God, I think that disrespects the process of what Jesus had to do to become who he was. I think it disrespects what the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation of the church is actually trying to protect, that Jesus' humanity is of absolutely unequivocal importance, right? If you don't have a human Jesus, you don't have someone who identifies with us, you don't really have God being among us, God with us, Emmanuel, you don't have that. You know, there's, there's, there's an ancient uh, heresy called docetism where, you know, Jesus's humanity was sort of just faking it. It just sort of appeared human, but really what he was was divine. He just sort of put on this robe of humanity and just sort of walked around, sort of like a Roman god, you know, coming down and sort of acting human, but they really don't belong here. Uh, That's, you know, deeply problematic for the Christian faith. So, the, the point of this is, you know, what if we disagree with Jesus? Well, we might have to at times, or we might, in other words, I think we have permission to engage what Jesus says and even if it's, you know, a gospel writer, I think this is one of the questioners, um, uh, you know, number uh, letter B, the gospel writers might have put their own spin on things. Yeah, of course they did. But you know, just leaving that to the side, there are points where we might want to engage these writings and say, yeah, but. I mean, one good example is what Jesus says about divorce. You know, it is in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Old Testament, uh, Moses uh, you know, allows for a certificate of divorce. 
But Jesus is more strict. He says that no, it's not just a certificate of divorce, like if the guy thinks, you know, he just is tired of her or whatever. It's only for, you know, adultery, for infidelity. That's the only time that the husband can divorce the wife. And, and uh, you know, the, the reason behind that is it actually protects those who might be unprotected, namely the wife. You can't just get rid of her because if you get rid of her, uh, she has no means of living. There's no economic stability for the most part, right? You don't just go to college and become a secretary back then, right? So, so Jesus is, I think this is a move to protect the woman. So Jesus had reasons for doing what he did, for saying what he said. But, you know, today we, we, we have a different problem to confront and it's, it's, you know, maybe spousal abuse, right? And, you know, I've heard this passage used to say, you know, Christians should never divorce unless there's adultery, right? Well, does that mean Jesus automatically, in any case where there's adultery, then you can divorce someone, right? Or, you know, what about if there's something else going on that's, you know, psychological abuse or physical abuse? What do you do in those situations, right? So I think it's okay. In fact, I'm going to say this. It's necessary to read this and say, okay, what wisdom is there in what Jesus is saying for his time? And we can think about that and how that maybe can be transported into a different time and place. But simply to say, you know, well, Jesus said this about divorce and that's it. That's the end of it. Well, goodness gracious. I mean, it's, it's you know, that, that would not be, I think, a wise thing to do. Right? See, Jesus said what he said, again, because of his full humanity addressing a human situation in his time and place. And, you know, he's, he's doing this in a, a rather dramatic way in the Sermon on the Mount. He's almost, po- well, he sort of is posing like a Moses figure giving commands from on high down to the people and engaging the Old Testament and switching it up a little bit and making it a little bit more stringent. But still, we look at this and say, Jesus is who he is, saying what he is, and there's wisdom there. But we cannot resolve, absolve ourselves, rather. We cannot absolve ourselves of our responsibility of thinking through what does it mean to represent Jesus here now best. And we may have to think differently about, let's say, the nature of divorce. And a whole lot of other things we could engage. But you see, in principle, in other words, I think it's our, our required, uh, you know, again, responsibility to engage these texts responsibly, right? And, you know, maybe if we were transferred, uh, transported back into those ancient days and uh, we were to, you know, engage Jesus from a modern point of view, we might bring some of these things up and probably Jesus would tell us to shut up because it's irrelevant. But the question is, okay, what is Jesus saying today? And what Jesus is saying today may be more than what Jesus said then. And this is all about now, not just who you think Jesus is, but how we think of the working of the Spirit in the life of Christians, in the life of the church today. And I think that's a very, very important question to bring into this. So so I think disagreeing with Jesus, so to speak, is not a sign of disrespect, but it's a sign of taking responsibility for living a Jesus cruciform life here and now. And there we have it, folks. Ask Bible Pete. I'm really curious what you thought about this, how it went for you. Um, 
I mean, I learned more on this episode of Ask Science Mike than I typically do, but it's because I had access to another person's thinking for the entire show, which I found marvelous. So here's what I'd like to know. Would you be interested in more guest hosts like this? An Ask Bible Pete round two someday? Uh, as always, this is your show. I'd like to take it in the direction that you're interested in. Reach out on social media or via my website and let me know if you like guest hosts or how Ask Bible Pete was for you. Thank you so much to Peter Enns for taking the time to host this program. And again, next week, make sure you check out the next season of The Bible for Normal People, Pete's amazing podcast, and you can support it on Patreon. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for slaving over this audio and making both Pete and I sound great and smarter than we actually are. Andrew Galecki for his work in pre-production on this program. Uh, including this special episode, and of course, my supporters on Patreon that make this show possible. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.